Uh, this week I'm going to be preaching on that passage we just heard read. Then next week we're going to jump into uh, Matthew chapter 7 and do the first uh, 12 verses, uh, which means you'll, you'll be aware that we're missing out verses 19 to 34 of chapter 6. I've not skipped that for any reason except for the fact that I preached on it when I was here in, at the end of February. And so I thought just for the sake of symmetry, I'd preach either side of it. And then the next time I come, I'll preach the next... No, no, I won't do that. But, uh, but you, just to explain why I'm skipping over this, uh, this passage, I thought that might be helpful. Uh, there's an outline leaflet you got as you came in, which will give you an idea of where we're heading. And it'd be wonderful to have uh, your Bibles open at that passage, Matthew chapter 6, because we need to wrestle with a few aspects of what's going on here, and it'll be really helpful if we can work it through together. So let, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll consider God's word. Uh, Father, we do thank you for uh, your wonderful kindness towards us in your Son. And Father, we pray that as we come to um, this part of your word in the, uh, the context of a Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most famous words that Jesus ever spoke, uh, that you'll give us insight to know uh, what it's saying, uh, its implications for us as, as your people, uh, that you'll help us to uh, think through how to live without hypocrisy, uh, without, uh, or without that concern for others around us rather than the concern to honour and serve you. Uh, so, Father, we commend this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Right at the, uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Jesus says these really chilling words, and they are, I think, uh, quite... They're meant to put the wind up you. Jesus says uh, from verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I, I wonder whether you could just as easily add, and did we not go to church regularly and did we not attend Bible studies or lead Bible studies and did we not serve you in a whole variety of other ways? I don't think this is meant to be limited. But didn't we do those things? And then Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. And how, how could this be? How could you have people who are doers of good and yet regarded by Jesus as evil doers? Doers of good and yet regarded as evil doers. We get a series of statements here in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that that take up this sort of idea so Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 to 18 we come across one thing that can cause this to happen uh, to be regarded as someone who not only does good but is regarded as an evil doer uh, the, the good things turned on their head and it's to do with hypocrisy that is pretending uh, to be something we're not to be two-faced uh, in Australia I, I suspect there's probably no greater insult that you can offer to somebody than say they're a hypocrite it's a big one at the top of the list and the problem this problem of hypocrisy is introduced in chapter 6 verse 1 look at it with me be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them now notice the problem is not with doing righteousness the problem is with doing them to be seen by others 
That's the point that Jesus is making. Back at the beginning of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples are called to one side by Jesus. So this is a, a chat around the, the fireside with his, his close disciples. That's what Jesus is doing here. In chapter 5, verse 20, uh, Jesus says to his, his close followers, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of God. And the rest of chapter 5 illustrates what this righteousness should be like. So there's a call for righteous living. You get to the end of chapter 5, verse 48, and Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yes, do your acts of righteousness. That's the point that Jesus is saying. But, chapter 6, verse 1, Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by others. If we'd spend more time working through the sermon today, you'd immediately be going, hey, wait a second, this can't be right. Let me show you why. You go back to chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus has already instructed his followers in this way. He said, let your light shine before others. Be a city on a hill, a light to the world. Uh, Be salt as you live in this world. That is, your righteousness is meant to be visible. People are meant to be able to see it. But then he says, but don't let anyone see your acts of righteousness. Okay, you've got this this interesting contrast or contradiction that occurs in this sermon. But isn't this the tension we all feel though, if we're followers of Jesus? Isn't there the tension between wanting to honour God by the way in which we live and yet being aware of the fact that we're often doing things in the presence of other people and we're wondering what they think or how they're assessing us as we go along. I think, I think this is the common tension that Jesus is actually tapping into in this sermon. So what he does is he explores how to live righteously with the right heart, not do it for the sake of other people around you. That's, that's what's going on here. So he gives us three examples in this uh, little section on doing righteous acts uh, to impress people or not impress people. So you've got the almsgiving, that is giving uh, money to the poor, that comes up in verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. When you're giving to the needy, don't do it in such a way that other people will praise you. Now, those of you who come here regularly know we never pass the bag around to take up a collection. If we did that, you could always ask for a drum roll as you put your money in the bag. That would be one possibility. But I guess maybe the way you do it if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus here is make sure your name's attached to your electronic transfer debit all the time. You, know, you want everyone to know exactly what you've given uh, for the sake of trans, you know, uh, a complete transparency. and everything. That's the sort of risk. The, the giving in a way to make sure that others are aware of what you've given. comes up again with prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing on the street corners to be seen by others. Uh, prayer becomes the impact that I have on the people around me rather than me speaking to my Heavenly Father, even if I'm calling on Him for the sake of others. That sense of impression... Or the fasting, you pick it up in verse 16, the third illustration in this section. When you fast, don't look sombre 
as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show their fasting. Now, I don't, I don't think these three activities are the sum total of things you can do in a hypocritical way. I think there are lots of things. See, I can be preaching to you uh, so that you will, you will know relationship with God but be more concerned about what you're thinking about the way I'm preaching than I am actually about preaching the word of God. Or uh, when Peter uh, leads the service up the front here. So how many times have you led a service here, Pete? Three times, okay. So you probably still feel a bit nervous when you get up the front and are wondering how people are thinking about how you're doing as you do it. You know, like, you know what? That's the risk, isn't it? Or when... Um, sorry, I'm not saying you're a hypocrite, mate, but... <laughs> Peter's a good friend of mine, but do you understand there's always that sort of tension, isn't there? Uh, or when, is it is Val leading us in prayer today? Yeah, yeah, so see when Val comes loose. See, is she going to lead us in prayer? And everyone will think, what a lovely accent Val has when she leads, right? Uh, you'll hear her accent if you don't know it in due course. The risk of doing it for the sake of show is Val's a lovely, godly woman as well. <laughs> but do you understand the tension, though, is always with that sort of, that double read on our motivations and on our actions. And the thing is, the good activities, to pray or to give money or to fast, they're good things to do. But when you do them and your motivation is what other people around you think of the way you've done them, then they are tainted. In fact, we're told this is what God thinks when you do it for those reasons. Verse 2, they have received their reward in full. Or verse 5, they have received their reward in full. Verse 16, they have received their reward in full. If you crave the approval of your peers, your congregation, your pastor, then once you've got it, (laughs) you get the stamp paid in full full you've got it done everything you wanted at this point has been achieved it's just a risk i have a friend who was a canon in a cathedral interstate and uh, all cathedrals as i understand it just always need money to run repairs so they stay upright and this guy as a canon was on the sort of ruling group that organized things for this cathedral now trying to work out how they would raise money to keep the roof from leaking on this cathedral. And they decided that what they ought to do was to have an honour board uh, for those who are big donors to repair the roof campaign. So those who, you know, gave more than 10,000 bucks would get on this special honour board uh, that would be in the foyer of this church as people came in for posterity uh, as an incentive for people to give. And my friend, who has a very dry sense of humour, said he would be very happy with this, provided Matthew chapter 6, verse 2 was printed at the bottom of the board, right? (laughs) They have received their award in full. Uh, The disturbing thing was that everyone on the group thought this was a wonderful idea. (laughs) And they have scripture on the board, thought it was a really... (laughs) That is the risk. So how do you guard against hypocrisy? Because we all know that the the temptation and the danger, uh, we get that. As soon as you hear these illustrations, you know there's a level of it. What Jesus does is he gives us two, at least two instructions on what to do about it. The first thing is one thing we can remember, and the second is one thing we can do, right? One thing we can remember, one thing we can do. 
The thing you ought to remember is that your father sees. Verse 4, your father sees. Verse 6, talks about your father who sees. Uh, Verse 18, your father who sees. Uh, The Pharisees who are the the target of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 6, what they see is the people around them. Uh, They're so aware of what those people that they can see think of them. And Jesus says instead, what you ought to be seeking is the approval of the one you can't see, but the one who sees you. Not the one who can't, you can't see, but the one who sees you. But isn't that the challenge? I think from the earliest age, most of us are trained in such a way as to be aware of and to desire the approval of those around us. As children, you want the approval of your parents. Uh, when you get to the stage of going to work, you actually do want the approval of your boss. Uh, you know, when you're growing up and you're a teenager, uh, you want the approval of your peers. That's why you dress the same as they do. You know, that's why every, every teenager always looks exactly the same, right? Because they want the approval and to fit in with their peers. And there are all sorts of pressures that feed in like that. Now, let me say some of those are appropriate. That is, I actually did, I think, want my children to want my approval. And I think that's an appropriate thing for parents to give their kids. Now, can you imagine growing up in a family where your parents never gave you any sense of approval or endorsement for anything you did? That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? So some approval is totally appropriate. But what Jesus is speaking about here is when it comes to righteousness, this is particularly our, our actions or activities that are done in order to please our Heavenly Father, don't do it instead. Don't prostitute it by doing it for the sake of other people around you. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And the way to do it, or it's a helpful thing to do, is to remember that your Heavenly Father sees. To always remember that He is the one in the grandstand and to live for His honour and His glory. Second thing is, though, Jesus says, here's another thing you can do to to guard your motives. Not one thing to remember, but one thing to do. Did you pick it up as it echoed throughout the the section? Verse 4, we're told, give alms in secret. Or verse 6, pray to your father in secret. Or verse 18, fast in secret. Um, Just keep it between you and God. Uh, don't let anyone else know. But I want to ask you, to me that doesn't seem very straightforward. Like it's not easy to do that, I don't think. Uh, Verse 3, see what it says about the giving to the poor. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. See, Jesus takes it a step further here. Not only don't do it for the sake of others around you, don't even let yourself know what's going on. And I'm thinking, that sounds a bit tricky to me. How do, I, how do I stop my left hand knowing what my right hand, stick my right hand in my pocket? I mean, how do you do that? What's, what's being said here? In the city, uh, at the church in the city that, that I'm part of, um, there's quite a large congregation there. So the budget 
uh, for the church is quite large as well. So there might be, say, 400 households who can, you know, who are in a position where they're any income and give towards the church budget at that point. That congregation always seems to be running behind budget. And as the pastor, you know, I was feeling a bit frustrated. So I did the sums. And uh, what I did was I worked out how much the budget was. I worked out how much Sue and I were giving. And I worked out that if 70 people gave what Sue and I gave out of those 400, we'd easily meet budget. Now, at that point, there were two things that happened, right? I felt grumpy because I thought everyone being so mean and ungenerous, unlike me. And, and at that point, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, actually, you know, Sue and I are quite generous people, aren't we? You know? And at that, that stage, I reckon my left hand might have known what my right hand was doing. Do you, under, do you understand how this works? and the traps we get ourselves into. Secrecy is quite a, a difficult thing at this point. Or you go to the next one, verse 6. Go into your room and close the door and pray to your father. Now, literally, this is go into your storage cupboard or wardrobe and pray. But again, I want to ask you, is this going to work? Let me run a scenario past you, right? Tomorrow morning, I decide I'm going to put Matthew chapter 6 into practice. And around breakfast time, Sue is calling out, Paul, my darling husband, you know, uh, where are you? And I say, I'm in the wardrobe, dear. Huh? What are you doing in the wardrobe, Paul? Right? What's going on here? I'm praying, darling. Yeah, the cat's out of the bag at this point. Okay. So the secrecy thing is actually a difficult thing to maintain. It's not straightforward. I think it can be legalistic about absolutely anything. And I want you to understand that Jesus is he's, he's pushing the limit here. He's stretching us to think about what's going on. The goal is not to make sure that no one ever possibly can discover anything you ever do. That is, our, our light is meant to shine. We're meant to be cities on a hill as a people of God. But I take it our goal is always to do it for the honour of God's name rather than to do it for the sake of other people around us. And we've just got to keep guarding that and keep working on that, living to delight our Heavenly Father. Now, just before I move on to what I think is the, the puzzle in this section, uh, I want to talk to you for a moment about uh, rewards, because rewards seems to come up a lot in this section, and often Christians, I think, have a, a confusion around this one. Notice when you're um, looking for the approval of others and you get it, then you've got your reward, right? You've received your reward in full. But if your aim is to honour God, then there is a reward that's promised. Right? You pick it up in verse 4. Your Father in heaven who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Or verse 6, your Father in heaven who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Or verse 18, your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So we ought to long for this reward from our heavenly father. But I can't help feeling it. Don't you feel it's a bit mercenary? Like, you know, we're sort of doing these good things so God will reward us. What sort of reward 
is on view. Uh, sometimes I've heard Christians describe that uh, the idea of the rewards being a bit like when you get into heaven, it's like the first marathon runner who turns up in the Olympics. You know, they come under the tunnel, into the stadium. The stadium is absolutely jam-packed. And the person who's run the marathon gets to run one full lap as everyone just roars in the stadium to their feet and applauds their arrival. And sometimes I've, I've heard it said that for Christians, it is a bit like that. Uh, that when we get to heaven, uh, we'll enter into the stadium and we've done our acts of righteousness in secret, but everyone in the crowd knows that we've actually done that. And as we sort of do the lap, just to adapt the language here, we're running our last lap as we enter into heaven saying, I did, you know, my arms giving in secret. I prayed in secret. I fasted in secret. But you all know that I did it secretly. And at that point, the whole crowd will erupt and say, well done, O doer of secret righteousness. I'm, I'm guessing it's not going to be like that. But that's not the way in which it works. So what sort of rewards are we talking about? What is the reward for godly living? Isn't it the joy of having the approval of your heavenly father? Isn't it the joy of knowing that you're in a, what's described in chapter 5 as a blessed relationship? Uh, where you know what it means to live in relationship with him. Isn't it to know his grace? Isn't it to know his mercy? And for that to sustain you at every point in every day. Is that not the reward? I mean, there's no greater reward than God himself, is there? None at all. Let me just move on uh, quickly to what I think is the, the puzzle in the, this section, just as we wrap up our time together. You'll, you'll notice that I've left out perhaps the best uh, known portion of this, this section of the Bible this morning, that is verses 9 to 15. Often people call it, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Now, the reason why I think it's puzzling is because it almost seems to be a, a digression from the main point. So what you've got as you go through this section, chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, you have statements about hypocrisy, about hypocrisy, about hypocrisy. And then you get to verse 9, and while prayer has come up, it almost seems like we have this, this sort of thought bubble to one side about prayer. I'm on the topic of prayer, so I'll move off and start talking about prayer a bit more. And, and let me say, I think this is an incredibly useful thought bubble, uh, really it is very, very helpful because it, it, it undermines or, or sorts out people's wrong understanding about how we pray. And we're not to pray like the pagans do, you know, just babbling on or thinking we'll be heard because of our passion or our noise or, uh, or because we just do it a lot. But, and I do find there are lots of Christians who keep echoing those sort of thoughts back to me. It's almost mathematical. You know, prayer is really uh, X plus y equals z and you get the elements right then you're okay x is the number of christians you get together to pray right plus y which is the length of time that you pray equals z the amount of answered prayer you get have you not heard that maybe even thought it 
I've thought that from at different points in time, that sort of mathematical formula. Can I say it's completely pagan? It's just an outrageous destruction of everything that the Bible says about a relationship with God. That somehow we can manipulate God by the number of Christians we get together to put him under pressure or by the length of time we passionately pray, suddenly he'll be so impressed that he'll feel he has to answer our prayers. It's not the God of the Bible. We have a loving Heavenly Father who rules heaven and earth and who longs to answer our prayers. So it's a good corrective from that point of view. But what we're in a section of the Bible that's talking about hypocrisy. So how does this instruction about prayer fit into it? I want to suggest to you that this framework for prayer is both an antidote to hypocrisy on the one hand, but also provides a test for hypocrisy, an antidote and a test. Firstly, the the antidote to hypocrisy. Uh, Already uh, we've seen the call in this section of the Bible to make God the focus of and our motive for doing righteousness. That's, That's what's been central. And I want to suggest to you that that's reinforced by this framework of prayer. Notice what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're praying to the Father that we want to be honoured. It's, it's a God-centred prayer, not an us-centred prayer. It goes on, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're not the centre point of existence and what people think of us. We want him to be glorified, him to be honoured. We go on, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, If you pray that way, then you recognise that you're in total dependence upon the God who rules the universe and who rules over your life. This prayer is a wonderful antidote to hypocrisy because it makes us God-centred people rather than people-centred people. Helpful from that point of view. But also I think what it does, this prayer, is it gives us a test for hypocrisy. This is a way of diagnosing whether you have a problem with hypocrisy but only in one particular area. Uh, Notice from verses 12 to 14, there's extended instruction on forgiveness. Now, why? Why this extra teaching on the need to forgive like you've been forgiven? The question that comes up in this section is whether you're doing your righteousness from the heart, whether you're, you're genuine you're the genuine article or whether you're a hypocrite that's the focus of what's going on here okay let's run a diagnostic test to see if that's the case and that's what happens with this prayer how are you going forgiving other people here's the test this is the test for hypocrisy let me you might be thinking actually i'm pretty good at this you know i forgive quite readily you know Uh, So let me just push you a bit further like Jesus does in the sermon. Go back to chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. 5, verses 43 and 44. Notice what Jesus says here. You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
I want to say to you that I'm naturally pretty good at loving my family and my friends. And I think I'm, you know, I do quite well at forgiving them. Those who are close to me in this way. I'm quite good at praying for persecuted people. Now, I do that on a regular basis. But notice what Jesus is pressing us to do on this area of forgiveness. He said, you are to pray for those and to forgive those who are your enemies, your enemies. Now, you see how this ties in with hypocrisy, don't you? You see, if you claim to be someone who knows the forgiveness and mercy of God, It's because God has taken you, his enemy, and made you his child. Isn't that an extraordinary thing? So if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, then you can say, I know what it means to be an enemy who's been forgiven and made a friend. Wouldn't it be the height of hypocrisy to not forgive those who are your enemies to say oh i know the forgiveness and grace and mercy of god but there are some people from whom i withhold that mercy and grace and forgiveness see here's the diagnostic test when it comes to hypocrisy will you be controlled by the actions of others and the way in which they've treated you and offended you and broken your heart or interfere with your life in some way or will you be controlled by the way in which your heavenly father has loved you and had mercy and grace on you so let me help you run the diagnostic test for yourself when it comes to this question of hypocrisy who would you regard as your enemy Yeah, who do you find it actually very hard to love? Who do you feel demeaned by? Who has wronged you? Who, when you, you think of this person or visualise their face, uh, you find in your heart real bitterness and resentment and anger? Uh, the sort of feeling that just burns in your gut because of the way in which people have treated you. Think of anyone like that? Who do you find it hard to forgive? What I'd love you to do now is just to um, to bow your heads because... uh, Uh, there'd be very few of us who uh, this sort of teaching on forgiveness doesn't evoke memories or thoughts or uh, heartache or anger or it might be historical, it might be current. Uh, But here's the test. Hypocrite? Although you you can be if you, you withhold forgiveness. You can choose to do that. Or you can be the one who follows the Heavenly Father who's forgiven. So let me ask you to bow your heads right now.
and just to take a moment We're in the face of uh, just that knowledge that there is someone that you find it hard to forgive. That you take a moment to ask God to help you remember and take to heart the forgiveness and mercy he's extended to you as his enemy and to ask him to help you forgive as you've been forgiven. I'll just give you a, a minute or so to do that. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the warning it contains about uh, practicing or doing our, our righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Father, we pray that as a community and individually you'll help us to uh, guard our hearts and minds from that sort of uh, behavior, that showy uh, performance behavior for the benefit of others around us rather heavenly father we pray that we'll, we'll be those who uh, center our thoughts and hearts on you our loving heavenly father that you'll help us to be those who are concerned for your name to be honored your rule to be established in our midst father help us in a world where we tend to provide for ourselves to be dependent upon you for all things and Father, we pray in this area of uh, forgiveness that you'll help us to remember the way in which you have forgiven us and had mercy on us and extended your grace to us. Father, help us not to be hypocritical with those who sin against us. Help us to be people who extend that same grace and mercy we've received to others. Uh, Father, we, we pray that we can be ones who are reconciled and generous from the heart. And Father, we know that this delights you and we live as your people and honour your name. So Father, we commend ourselves to you. We pray that uh, we will continue to know your grace and mercy, uh, that you'll continue to delight to let us be a, a light that shines to be salt in this world. Father, we pray that we'll bring you glory as we do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.